So tonight, from my perspective, uh, tonight is the third Tuesday of the 100-day retreat. And I tried to calculate with my primitive mathematics and something like 14, the 100-day retreat will span something like 14 weeks. Is that about right? Anybody calculate that? I know many of you are not here tonight with that frame of reference of the 100-day retreat, but I just wanted to say up front that some of what I've been thinking about and what I'd like to talk about is really framed by this uh, very, uh, for many people, very unique and different commitment that that they are making, that we are making, to practice uh, or to frame our life in the uh, form of a 100-day practice period where we extend ourselves a little bit more in a creative and individual way where we extend ourselves in our practice and hopefully deepen our commitment. And last week, as part of this, I, part of this practice period, I spoke of going against the stream uh, and going against the stream of our, our conventional habits and compulsions, addictions, etc., in going against the stream, we will meet up with obstacles. And I spoke of the five common obstacles that we tend to come up against when we, uh, when we face ourselves directly, when we, instead of continually, as we are in the habit of doing, go out of ourselves in search of well-being, come back to ourselves, we're often faced with strong desires to be somewhere else, strong resistance to being here, and we're also met with a feeling often of agitation, worry, anxiety. We're often faced with the residue of our, um, of, of our very busy life in the form of, of sloth and torpor, deep sense of dullness of mind, and we're often faced in going against the stream of our habits with a lot of doubt and confusion and not a lot, often not a lot of confidence in what we're doing. And tonight I would like to talk about, other than using these difficulties that present themselves as our path, using them in the service of awakening, the service of learning how to find a place of balance and strength and peace, even when our mind is filled with desire, aversion, restlessness, sleepiness, and doubt, beside the value of, of using those things and bringing mindful attention and loving kindness to all of our very painful compulsions and habits, there are some traditional ways that one protects oneself, uh, gains a certain faith and confidence, and is able to navigate through a hundred days of practice or a whole life of practice with some sense that it is uh, onward leading, that is beneficial, that it, that helps keep in mind what we're doing, why we're doing it, and what the potential is for doing it. And that is to speak about two of the rituals that are commonly uh, done at the beginning of practice periods, but in fact are done every day in monasteries and practice centers, and they are 
these rituals are, uh, it is encouraged to make these a regular ritual, not just one that marks the beginning or an end of a practice period, but something that you call upon every day, and especially when the going gets tough. The first ritual I wanted to speak about is one that has been practiced now for 20, almost 2,600 years, so we're, we have to remind ourselves that we're not taking on a new age practice here. It may be new to us, but it is something that has been taken into people's hearts and minds and repeated for 2,600 years. And that ritual is the is the specific commitment of our our attention, commitment of our lives to the process or the path, a path of awakening, a path of of love, the path of non-harming, the path of of mindfulness, the path of presence. And it's done in the form of taking refuge in what are called the three, the triple gem or the three jewels, the Buddha, the Dharma, and the Sangha. And this does not mean that when you take refuge in the Buddha, the Dharma, and the Sangha, you go to the, they're called the three refuges, the three jewels, the triple gem. It doesn't mean that you become a Buddhist. I always like to remind everyone when I talk about the triple gem that the Buddha was not a Buddhist. He was awake. He was a human being like us who, through the power of his own uh, holy longing, his own yearning, his, through the power of his own natural, intrinsic intelligence, he, he applied his, his own heartfulness and observing power and discovered the truths that he later taught. And he didn't initially, he never called them Buddhism. That was a 19th century colonial creation. Buddhism, the isms. What he shared, though, for 45 years after his awakening was the Buddha Dharma, the teachings of the Buddha, things that he realized. And he encouraged from the moment of his awakening to, for those who were interested to come and see for themselves whether or not the teachings that he, the realizations that he had were true. So right from the beginning, he was saying, don't just join a club. Don't become a true believer. Don't adopt beliefs. Don't take this on, don't have blind faith. But through your own direct experience, see for yourself whether it's true. And if you discover that what I say is true, and you discover it through your own experience, you can then uh, be said to be one of verified faith, something that is born of your, of your own internal experience, not just a feeling that you have about it, but something that, is a, that creates in you an unshakable peace, an unshakable confidence, and uh, you can know for yourself that you have experienced at least what he called the sure heart's release. So this is not something that is just a, an idle, uh, good feeling about something. This is something that you, you will know through every cell of your body, whether it, uh, whether it has validity or not. But through all of this, you're not meant to believe it. So when we take refuge in the Buddha, the Dharma, and the Sangha, we are, 
we're not joining a club, but we are joining, we are, we are recognizing that we are f following a path or a way that has been well walked. That is not that we're not the first we're not we've, we're not the first people to do this, and it's a reminder when we know that there have been literally millions over 2,600 years doing this practice. We know that it's not easy to do it alone. In fact, you can't do it alone. We need the support of the connection with others. We need the support of some of the teachings. So this is where the, the actual refuge, refuges come into play. The first refuge is refuge in the Buddha. And many people think, oh, this means you bow to the Buddha. Uh, the perfectly, uh, traditionally, the, some of the recitation is the perfectly enlightened one. And it's true that many people, after they've practiced for some time and realize some of the fruits of practice, feel this kind of devotional feeling, feel this, this deep appreciation for the awakening of this human being 2,500 years ago. So when they take refuge in the Buddha, the first refuge, they, they align themselves with, this, with deep gratitude and appreciation for this um, for the realization, for the teachings, for how profound and skillful and, and compassionate they, they are, etc., etc. But the deeper meaning of taking refuge in the Buddha means, Buddha means awake. It's taking refuge in that capacity that you have as the very consciousness through which you are perceiving that the very nature of the consciousness through which you're perceiving is by nature awake. It is this intrinsic wakefulness in every human being that has been ignored, that it has been, it has been, uh, it is, it has not been appreciated, it's been overlooked, overshot. And that within ourselves we have the capacity, both the capacity to realize this Buddha within, this intrinsic wakefulness, and the freedom that comes along with that, and that we have also the capacity to experience the the fruits of the fruits of being awake, which is the awakening of the uh, noble qualities of love, of compassion, of joy. Of I talked about that unshakable balance of equanimity. The awaken to the capacity to navigate this world of the what are called the eight worldly winds of praise and blame and gain and loss and fame and shame and gain and fame and shame and pleasure and pain to navigate these worldly winds with a, a certain uh, balance and um, serenity and to live in this world as an as a an ornament to life rather than uh, rather than a uh, uh, for some reason the image of a cactus is coming into my mind rather than something that causes that causes harm to be uh, to be a an expression of of um, of of caring and non harming which is really our heart's desire and our capacity. So this is all within us and when we take refuge in the Buddha, we take refuge in our own minds, 
in our own capacity to the Buddha within. As one of my favorite Japanese Zen poets put it, Buddha is your mind. And the way goes nowhere. It's again a reminder, like the instructions this evening, that what we are actually looking for is what it is that's looking. We are actually looking for ourselves. And what we can, how we find ourselves, how we find this Buddha, is to stop going out and running after, but to settle back into the moment and see what happens when we awaken to what's here. Using all the experiences of our lives, pleasant and unpleasant, all those worldly winds, using them all as our means of awakening. Let everything be the cause of awakening to the Buddha within. Notice, even now, what it's like when you take refuge in the Buddha, when you take refuge in being awake, right in this moment. Now, this may sound a little bit vague, but I want to contrast this with where we ordinarily go for refuge. Where do we ordinarily go for refuge? Anybody willing to speak? What... Because everybody wants to find some kind of protection to deal with the worldly winds. Where do we go? We go to food. Anyone else? Sleep. Sleep. Television. We tend to go, what's alcohol? Yes, we go to sex. We go to alcohol. We go to, very often, anywhere but here. We go to the imagined past often. I remember as a a high school student, one of my friends, his father, I lived in the heartland of America in the Midwest, in Omaha, Nebraska. And a friend of mine, his father had one of these cabin cruisers, these boats, and he loved to cruise up and down the Missouri River. And I often went on the boat with my friend and his father. It was To me, it was like having a cultural experience. It was like being in a foreign country. Because his father would stand at the helm of the boat and he would reminisce about the war, about World War II. He lived in his memories being with his military buddies in World War II. His whole frame of reference was the past. This is where he went for refuge, for relief. We either go to the past in some way, either our past miseries or traumas, or we tend to go to the imagined future when everything will be better. Very rare are we given even the message that the way out of our misery is to come right back to where we are. The way out is in. The cure, as Rumi put it, the cure for pain is in the pain. Meet it with, let the Buddha meet that pain. Right here. And where is the Buddha? The Buddha can only be found right here. Because the Buddha is your own mind. And again, the rest of the poem from Ryokan, Buddha is your mind, and the way goes nowhere. Don't look for anything but this. If you point your cart north when you want to go south, how will you ever arrive? (laughs) I always get such a chuckle out of that. So our habit is to to go to uh, to things 
and situations that often will give us in our innocent search for relief and refuge that will give us a feeling of of pleasure, of delight. There are so many ways that we can find pleasure and delight in this life. And and in fact, it's it's pleasurable to sit here tonight. It's pleasurable to, to listen to music. It's pleasurable to see, to hear, to smell, to taste. It's pleasurable to eat. All those things are very pleasurable. But those the pleasures we often don't appreciate leave in their wake because of their fleeting nature and their ultimately unreliable nature. They leave in their wake a feeling of loss, of dissatisfaction, and trigger condition or become the cause of more and more dissatisfaction and more wanting. They have truly, most of the ways that we, most of the things that we've done uh, to give ourselves a sense of protection, to give ourselves a safe feeling, uh, have just added to our dissatisfaction. Someone, I read some article, I'll I'll bring it, bring some of the details in, in another week, but said that one of the ways that we, we spend 49.6% of our time lost in thought. And the more we spend time lost in thought, even though it's one of the great, what is seemingly a great pleasure to daydream, it makes us, the longer we spend lost in thought, the more miserable be, we become. Somehow, I'll bring the actual study, but it doesn't sound so convincing the way I'm saying it right now. So the, we go to the Buddha for refuge. It's a different experiment. And this is what we commit ourselves in a practice period. I'm going to experiment by rather than going to my my easy but unsatisfying distractions for this time of practice, and hopefully it'll be your whole life, I'm going to go to... And this doesn't mean that you completely renounce all pleasure. We have to have pleasure. But it means that I go as my primary refuge. I go to that, as one of my teachers said, go marry the one who won't divorce you. I know that may be a loaded statement for some of you, but it's got the deeper meaning. Go to that in you that cannot be taken away. Even though awareness, presence of mind fluctuates, it is always available and accompanies you in every instant. So experiment with what happens to your life when you go to the Buddha for refuge. Now you can also, in your practice, you can, you can use it as a practice of gratitude and appreciation for the historical figure, that, reminding yourselves that this was a human being like ourselves, not some kind of mythical figure, not somebody who was some celestial being, but was flesh and blood and suffered like all the rest of us, who found a way to, to be truly happy, to find that highest happiness called the Nibbanic bliss or peace, uh, that it is possible for human beings to truly be happy. And that's, we don't really, in our heart of hearts, we don't usually really even believe that's possible. And 
we've become, without even knowing it, kind of cynical about our capacity. And in fact, this is... Um, we wouldn't be sitting here tonight if it wasn't for the, the uh, impact of this one person like us who just looked it over very carefully with a lot of, with a lot of commitment and w- refused to stop searching until he found something that was reliable, something that, that you could say was um, unconditional, unassailable, and... In all of his practice, he realized that that was none other than the very nature of his own mind. And that that reminder that we don't need to go anywhere to find that. We need to stay. This is radical, to actually stay where we are for once in our lives. Keep our, in other words, keep our minds here. We, our bodies will keep moving around. You've got to work, you have to run, you can exercise, you can do everything. But as you do, whatever you do, you stay where you are. This is commitment to the Buddha. Commitment to be awake in do, knowing what you're doing when you're doing it. It's also, in some ways, synonymous to the, the commitment to have mindful awareness of what you're doing. So we take refuge in the Buddha. We take refuge in the Dharma. Now, Dharma is the word in Sanskrit, Dhamma in Pali, for, uh, for truth. We, uh, so it's the, generally it means truth, but we can talk about it more generally as we take refuge in the way things are. Not how we hope they will be, expect them to be, want them to be, should be, could be, would be, but how they are in this moment. We first, and before we were busy changing the world, first we have to open to it just the way it is. We have to find our balance with it just the way we are so that instead of reacting in a kind of compulsion to change the world and change our lives and change everyone around us, we can rather respond to what we discover. And, of course, if we find that there is pain in our lives, in our own minds, in the lives of people around us, it's natural to, uh, to reach out and to be quite passionate and active in trying to uh, ease the, the hearts and minds and lives of other people. But it begins by taking refuge with how it is, seeing clearly. So refuge in the Dharma means refuge in whatever your experience is right now. And that right now is always. What is happening? So that means not refuge in what's happening tomorrow or yesterday, but what's happening now. To put your trust in what's happening rather than put your... Where do we normally put our trust? We put on our, our trust in tomorrow. And what happens to us when we put our trust in tomorrow? What is it when we put our trust in how things... We're never where we are. We're often anxious, often worried. As I often... I think I, I must sound like a broken record, but I... I think every week I talk about how when, when we associate our well-being with what's next, there is always that possibility that what's next 
may not turn out so well. And because of that uncertainty, we often walk around with a sense of impending doom, a a sense of suspended well-being, waiting to see what happens. And that's a state of anxiety. That's a state of, of postponement. Taking refuge in the Dharma means taking refuge in how it is now. How it, what is the truth now? Now, the more formal meaning of taking refuge in the Dharma is taking refuge in the Dharma as also described as the body of teachings. It was called the Buddha Dharma, the, the truth as expounded by the Buddha. Taking refuge in the teachings as a support, as a guide, as a template to be able to bring, um, to bring more... Uh, well-being and more wakefulness, more loving-kindness, more, more uh, purity of action into our lives, we draw, we draw support from the teachings. Now, the, the teachings are vast, but the essence of the teachings, the Dharma, is the, especially in the context of what we will be doing here, is the Noble Eightfold Path. The teachings that lead to the the sure heart's release, that lead to a sense of harmony with ourselves and with each other. And that includes wise understanding, wise intention or thought, wise uh, action, wise speech, wise livelihood, wise effort, how we use our energy, and wise concentration and wise mindfulness. And all of the, the teachings that point to the potential of human beings to be very well developed in patience, in generosity, in wisdom, in compassion, in all the, the boundless qualities of, of joy and, and the universal quality of, of, of a boundless sense of goodwill. Not the, so much the sentimental kind, but the kind that, that, that naturally wishes all beings to be well. And the teachings keep pointing to how we can cultivate these, um, these qualities within ourselves or reawaken these qualities within ourselves. This is the Dharma of the Buddha, the Buddha Dharma. We take refuge in this. This is very different than our normal uh, refuge, the teachings we normally take refuge in. What are the teachings we normally take refuge in? Shop till you drop. Distract yourself at any cost. Cling, cling to that which is impermanent. Uh, so we, we are basically inculcated from the moment we're born with misinformation about what it really, what really helps us be more happy and content in this life. And we wonder why we're unhappy. We are actually encouraged to get bound up, to get wound up in this um, internal world of an imagined being called me. The imaginary version of ourselves. Not the true Buddha that's sitting here. The true being that you are with all those potential qualities, with all, and, but all the uniqueness of yourself. Not that, but the imaginary version that's never satisfied, that's never enough, too high, too low. Somebody's always got more. Somebody has a, the, the 
the, the version that plays in our mind. This is what we're actually encouraged to be caught in. The competitive mind, good, better, best, constantly measuring. Constantly measuring how high, how low. And this, unfortunately, has made nobody happy. So the, the Dharma uh, has been all about me. And, we, and I said rhetorically, why are we so unhappy? And I'm reminded of a poem from Wei Wu Wei where he says, why are you so unhappy? He says, because 99.9% of everything you do and think is for yourself. And there isn't one. There isn't one in the way we imagine there to be one. There is one that's sitting here that is absolutely unimaginable. That is absolutely indescribable. It is that, that you are the Buddha. You are this, this immaculate presence with all of, its, all of its qualities, just waiting to burst out. But you spend so much of your time, we spend so much of our time in our internal drama, that internal version of ourselves, that we miss the, the Buddha and the, the Dharma of how things actually are. So the... So taking refuge in the Dharma is taking refuge in that direct experience of truth and the teachings that support that keep reminding us to come out of the the mis the the uh, the adharmic the non-dharmic teachings that we're uh, often uh, hypnotized by in our lives. So the Buddha, the Dharma. Third, the and equal to. Third, maybe often given short shrift or given, not given enough attention, but I find that it's, um, I'm giving more attention to this now and it's actually coming alive for me in my own understanding of the teachings. And that's refuge in the Sangha. Sangha is the word for uh, community or association. And it's it's based on the, a very ancient concept in the Hindu world out of which the teachings of the Buddha, or the Buddha was actually born into the, the Hindu world, basically. But it comes out of this word called satsang. Now, sangha is the word in that part of, is part of that word, but the, the first part of that word is sat, and it gets back to the dharma. When you meet the Dharma, the truth of how things are, with when people meet in community for the purpose of opening to the Dharma, of opening to what's true, what's true about my own patterning, what's true about the world, what's true about things in general, what are the laws that are governing this world, what causes suffering, what brings the end of suffering. When beings meet with the purpose of discovering, exploring, reflecting on, awakening to truth, there is that in that kind of community, that kind of satsang that we call sangha, there is a sacred power. There is a liberating power. There's a, there, there's a kind of mystical sense that uh, there's a kind of feeling. Maybe you even feel sometimes when you sit together with a group of people. Because we may not be thinking, oh, now I'm opening to the truth. But when you stop, when you put your mind in your body, when you're just here, you're actually, whether you know it or not, you're opening to the dharma 
to just the direct experience, not your ideas about here, but right here. When you do that with a group of other people, there's a field that gets created. There's often a, I often walk out of here in the evening, I think maybe because I'm in this seat, and I get to feel and mingle with the, you know, 100 people sitting together, but I think it's not just me. I think we all enter into a kind of supportive, harmonizing, healing field of presence. And this is called Sangha. Now, Sangha isn't just this nice little field. It's the, it's fr- the friendships that we create, the like-minded company that we keep that is essential to make this kind of commitment. If you don't make this, if you don't have like-minded friends, it's really hard to do this. So this is... Uh, Refuge in the Sangha. Traditionally, refuge in the Sangha meant the refuge in the uh, in what was called the Arya Sangha. And we this this is another little this is another perhaps mystical sense, but perhaps you can understand it as I speak of it. The Arya Sangha is the Sangha of awakened beings. And we know that we would not be here if it wasn't for a stream over twenty six hundred years of beings who had put the teachings to practice and realized the fruits and out of their generosity and compassion have kept sharing for 2,600 years. And that stream of generosity and compassion is the, um, is the field created by the Arya Sangha. So it's not, we wouldn't be here if it wasn't for that. And so we can think about that and draw inspiration from that uh, current, that living current of teachings and practice that has gone on for, for this amount of time. So that's what some people think of, but I like to think of it in the more immediate sense, the support and the healing power of practicing together and keeping like-minded company, uh, equal to the Buddha and the Dharma. So I actually, this is all we... I don't have time for the precepts tonight. I'll have to do that next week. So we will just... Uh, we will just uh, do these uh, refuges together. Please, if you don't mind staying until we're done, it's a little disruptive to get up in the middle. I know some people have to. But I'd like us to chant the refuges in the way that they've been chanted for the last 2,500 years. And we'll do it in the Pali language, but I'll tell you what you're chanting in English so you don't get spooked. Uh, essentially, we will be chanting, I go to the Buddha for refuge, I go to the Dharma for refuge, I go to the Sangha for refuge, and we do it three times. And I will do a brief introduction, then we will do it in Pali, call and response. Then I'll have a few announcements and we can call it a night. Han tamayan buddharatana satinayan jakaromase namo tasa bhagavato arahato samasambhutasa namo tasa bhagavato arahato Sama Sambhutasa Namo Tasa Bhagavato Arahato 
Sammasambhutasa Buddham Saranangachami Buddham Saranangachami Dhamam Saranangachami Dhamam Saranangachami Sangam Saranangachami Dutyampi Buddham Saranam Gachami Saranam Dutyampi Dhamam Saranam Gachami Dutyampi Sangam Saranam Gachami Tatyampi Buddham Saranam Gachami Tatyampi Dhamam Saranam Gachami Tatyampi Sangam Saranam Gachami If you haven't um, entered into the stream of the 100-day retreat, perhaps you can maybe feel like you have now. You've officially begun. You are, you are setting sail, and hopefully you'll be protected, and you will use these as a protection, a reminder of what you're doing. I had hoped to tonight to also do the, the ritual of uh, all of us taking... Uh, the five training guidelines or precepts, ways of uh, conducting ourselves during our life and our practice period for mostly protecting ourselves from ourselves, but also protecting others as well. And that's essentially, I'll just name them, to refrain from killing, bringing a reverence to life at all times, uh, and respect for life, not killing, not stealing, which means not taking that which is not offered. Uh, third, not um, causing harm with our sexuality, and letting our sexuality be motivated by caring, but not by lust and, and exploitation, to be really sensitive and mindful in our sexual relationships. It's a source of a lot of suffering. Uh, to refrain from... Uh, causing harm with our speech, which is a whole evening that we'll do uh, alone. And last, not to cause harm to ourselves or others through the use of intoxicants that cloud the mind and lead to heedlessness. And we know the level of suffering that has been caused by uh, alcohol and drugs used, uh, used to excess and used to the point of heedlessness. So this is the, the general. I'll, I can go into these a little more next week. But uh, you can, if you know them, take them and uh, let them be a protection in your life, in your practice. And you'll find that even if you just practice wise, uh, practice wise speech, uh, you will notice a, a transformation. If you just practice uh, any one of these, uh, 
uh, it will be a, a great support to yourself and others. So thanks for listening. Uh, let's just for one moment reflect that if there's been any benefit to us being together, that we remember that we don't uh, exist in our quietness. We understand that we don't exist separate and apart from each other ultimately, and that everything that we do and think, any way that we act, uh, has an impact on ourselves and all beings. And so we hopefully the, the effect of our being together tonight will, uh, will be useful to all beings. And we, we intensify or we increase that intention that it be of benefit by sharing the blessings of our practice and wishing that all beings can have happiness and the causes of happiness in their lives. All beings can be free of suffering and the causes of suffering that all beings can recognize the sacred happiness that is without sara, the Buddha, the Buddha within, and that all beings can at least grow in serenity and equanimity, uh, able to meet the worldly winds with, with serenity, less grasping and aversion, and a deep wish that our life, our work, and our practice be dedicated today and every day to the welfare and benefit of all beings. May all beings be free. Anyway, thank you for being here. Just another reminder that our room rental is $150 per week. Any help with the room rental called Room Rental Donna, much appreciated. If you would like to, uh, if you're interested in make, if you're making a room rental donation and you'd like it to be tax deductible, you can make it out to the St. John the Evangelist Episcopal Church and it will be tax deductible and you'll receive some kind of notice at some point. And, uh, but any, any room rental donna in any form is great. And any teaching, teacher donna, the generosity for, in response to any generosity that I may have offered or anybody who takes this seat, uh, in a tradition that goes back 2,500 years, teachings offered in the spirit of generosity, if you feel to, to return that with your own practice of generosity, baskets right over there on the organ bench, and thank you uh, for your generosity. And the next group that I am with will thank you as well. Anyway, thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.